from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 28th. Today, new revelations about what was going on inside the government during the height of the coronavirus outbreak. In retrospect, it's kind of striking because the U.S. was ranked the best prepared country for a pandemic. Yasmin Abutalib is a health policy reporter at The Post. The people responsible in the health agencies, you know, across the government knew that there were always going to be challenges in something like this. This was certainly a problem that was appreciated by several administrations. George W. Bush had read The Great Influenza and then demanded a number of briefings on pandemic preparedness. Bill Clinton talked about this. Barack Obama talked about this. But I don't think any of those plans or discussions or infusions of money that might have come here and there appreciated the scale of what we endured here. For the last few months, Yasmin and economics editor Damien Paletta have been looking back to the early days of the pandemic in the U.S. It was, as they put it, a nightmare scenario. There was talk of what if there is a pandemic flu or a pandemic respiratory virus. But the reality was that the country just didn't have the resources or the infrastructure to really deal with it. The public health system wasn't ready. The national stockpile of emergency medical equipment certainly wasn't ready. And I think we saw that play out in a pretty devastating way with the shortages of N95 masks and gowns and gloves and just basic equipment for healthcare workers. Hospitals in the southern and western parts of the U.S. are finding their ICUs filling up with COVID-19 patients. Um, Authorities are concerned about shortages in equipment, protective gear. Supply interruptions happen weekly. Recently, the staff was forced to make their own disinfectant wipes. Shortages for supplies across the board, but these N95 respirator masks in particular are in high demand and short supply. Supply of N95 masks in particular cannot meet the current demand. On Tuesday, Yasmin and Damien are out with a new book. It's called Nightmare Scenario, and it chronicles what happened when a mysterious new virus collided with an underprepared federal government. If we look back on that mask debate that they had in the Situation Room in February and March of 2020, I mean, not to be overdramatic about it, but the course of American history could have changed. Hmm. You know, if they had rallied around a plan to encourage Americans to wear masks and they were unified and the president went out and, you know, got the whole country to rally together. Remember, his approval ratings were quite high at the end of March, but the failure to agree. And there was really just a meeting or two where things really unraveled. I think really set the tone for things going south. Obviously, I think the biggest inflection point is possibly when the president contracted coronavirus in early October and was, our reporting shows, kind of on the brink of possibly dying. Hmm. And there was a really concerted effort among the doctors on the health team to try to get the president to finally appreciate and recognize how dangerous that this virus is. I just left Walter Reed Medical Center 
And it's really something very special. And when he emerged from the helicopter on that Monday, all, you know, hopped up on steroids, saying this is nothing to fear. You know, I whipped this virus and America can too. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went, I didn't feel so good. That was a real turning point because he sort of said, listen, I'm not going to acknowledge publicly how deadly this is. I'm going to acknowledge how survivable it is. Hmm. You said that he had a more serious case than was let on publicly. Can you talk more about that and what the reality was behind the scenes for what that was like when the former president got COVID? The president emerged pretty defiant and triumphant from that experience. But the reality is that from the day his aides suspected he might be sick to the day he left Walter Reed, there was this extraordinary effort to try to save his life. Our reporting shows that the Health and Human Services Secretary at the time, Alex Azar, received a call the same day that we all found out that Hope Hicks was sick, asking if he could help the White House obtain access to an experimental treatment now authorized for use, but at the time was still experimental, known as a monoclonal antibody. And Azar at the time put together that it was for Hope Hicks. And then later, just a few hours later, the FDA commissioner at the time, Steve Hahn, got a call asking for help obtaining the same drug. And he didn't know who it was for, but would eventually find out later it was for the president. So this is a drug that looked to be pretty effective. It was not available to the broader public. It's it's not easy to obtain these drugs outside of a clinical trial. And over the course of that weekend, the, the president's condition deteriorated and he was given access to pretty much every drug that had some proven efficacy against COVID. And I think it's important to note it would be exceptionally difficult for any other person to obtain access to that combination of drugs. And we know that his oxygen level dropped lower than we were told at the time. And there were some of his aides, including his then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who were consumed with fear he was going to die that weekend. Mike Pence, the vice president, his aides were not briefed on a plan to swear in the vice president if Trump became incapacitated. Just think about that. I mean, he was on, he was put on oxygen twice, 74 years old, obese. He was kind of a sitting duck statistically for this virus. It could have been a complete fiasco to be a month from an election with a president who's in a coma or worse and to have this confusion over who's really leading our country. Wow. I'm curious, what are some of the other moments that you got a better sense of in your reporting where even when the events that played out publicly seemed really bad, that what was actually happening behind the scenes was even worse than many of us had realized? You know, the opening scene of the book is from August 2020 when Anthony Fauci is in his office at the NIH and he's he opens an envelope that he brought with him that had come in the mail to his house. And as soon as he opens that envelope with this metal letter opener, white powder explodes all over his face, his shirt, his tie, and his seat. He kind of freezes in fear. And he calls security, and this you know guy comes barreling into the office with a weapon, and then they have to 
decontaminate the office. You know, Dr. Fauci thinks this could be one of three things. It's either going to be anthrax, which means he'd have to take some kind of medication to survive. It could be a hoax or it could be ricin and he would be dead because there's no cure. And so they take this 79-year-old man, one of the most famous doctors on the planet, the center of the, you know, government's response to this pandemic and also someone that, you know, millions of Americans hate because the president and his supporters have kind of unleashed terror on him and they have to strip him down. They strip him down first to his underwear and decontaminate him with um, some chemicals. And then he has to stand essentially in a kiddie pool there in the NIH and he strips down naked and finishes cleaning himself off all by himself. And at that moment, he didn't know whether that was going to be it. Oh my gosh. And they send him home to wait with his wife where he's supposed to get the call about what the you know forensic analysis of the powder was. And sure enough, it ends up that it was um, just some kind of cosmetic powder. You know, it was a hoax. And mm. little did he know at the time that um, Bob Redfield, the head of the CDC, also got an envelope with powder in it. And Deborah Burks had been getting letters to her house that were, you know, saying all kinds of awful, horrible things. I mean, I think people don't understand what these doctors went through. And, you know, they were obviously subject to political abuse and pressure from the White House, but there was so much going on behind the scenes that Americans didn't realize. I'm curious if there are more details about Dr. Fauci or also Dr. Burks or some of the other uh, public health officials that we kind of got to know as the public just looking to them for information and understanding of what was going on. Like, if you were able to find out a little bit more about what this was like for them personally. We did. And that was one of the things that we thought was really important to document because at the end of the day, they are people and they're human and they were dealing with an enormous amount of pressure, not only from the White House, but from the public. For someone like Deborah Burks, who had this really celebrated public health career, you know, she's a 40-year public health servant and, and had one of the most powerful public health jobs on the planet before she decided to come serve as the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. She saw her whole reputation kind of go up in flames through the course of the year because she made a number of calculations about how she would maintain the most influence. Well, what, what do you mean by that? What, what are those calculations? So one of her really famous interviews that she still gets criticized for is one at the end of March. How would you describe the job President Trump is doing behind the scenes and in front of the cameras during these daily briefings that we're seeing? What's been your perspective, Dr. Burks? He's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. She said that the president was really attuned to the data and interested in the granularity of it. And I think his his ability to analyze and integrate data that comes out of his long history in business has really been a real benefit during these discussions about medical issues. And it was just something that people knew did not describe President Trump. He's never really shown interest in data or the granularity of the data. Mm-hmm. I think Yasmin and I found her to be an incredibly complicated figure, an incredibly private person who even people who had known her for decades couldn't quite figure out. You know, she really took a calculated gamble at the beginning, whereas Fauci, you know, had no qualms about standing up to the president and challenging the president's views. Dr. Burks was much more careful and at times did, 
you know, kind of lend credibility to some of the positions that the president and the vice president wanted to take in terms of putting out a rosier scenario about the direction things were going to go. And that gave her a lot of influence for a period, you know, possibly into early April. She did play a key role in that initial decision to do the 15 and 30 day shutdown. You know, if she had not kept up close ties to the president and vice president, those 15 and 30 day shutdowns might never have happened. And I think she, you know, doesn't get credit for that. Do you get the impression that she regrets how she approached dealing with the White House in those early stages of the pandemic? I think to Damien's point, she's incredibly complicated. So I don't want to pretend that we know how she thinks, but it was clear that it really weighs on her how much her reputation suffered because of this. She didn't get a job in the Biden administration. She was viewed as tied too closely to Trump. And one of the things that we also get into is how for some of the other doctors, including Dr. Burks and Dr. Redfield, they kind of start to resent the hero status that Fauci obtains through all of this because Hmm. they feel like they're getting just crushed by the press and by the public every day. And they feel that behind the scenes, they're really trying to do the right thing and they're trying to help, but they feel hamstrung by what they can say publicly. And of course, that's what people see. For someone like Burks, she was traveling the country, collecting data. Once she realized the jig was kind of up in the White House, She goes to states and city and local leaders to try to tell them to implement mass mandates, and she decides that's going to be her mission. But it's something they couldn't recover from. And I think they start to resent the fact that there's this a a large segment of the population that adores Fauci and kind of views him as the, the lone voice of truth when they feel like they've made mistakes, but so has he. And he's not being punished for those in the same way that they are. So I think Hmm. this gives you a window into the very human emotions everyone was feeling. And I think Damien and I were struck by just how much everything that happened weighed on some of these people. I mean, some of these people told us they literally have post-traumatic stress disorder from everything they endured last year and just the, the horror of the number of people that died because of this response. Wow. And Fauci and Burks had a really interesting dynamic. You know, they had been colleagues for years. There definitely was this tension between the two of them. I think more so, as Yasmin mentioned, you know, Burks kind of annoyed at how, you know, there was Fauci t-shirts and Fauci donuts and Fauci socks and Fauci bobbleheads. And and Fauci we trust. Exactly. God save Fauci. And so there's this moment in July slash August of 2020 when the president's clearly bringing in Scott Atlas to replace them. You know, a doctor from Stanford who kind of says everything the president wants to hear. And Fauci has this kind of innocence about him where he calls Burks and he's like, well, you know, maybe we should talk to Scott Atlas, you know, and try to reason with him. And Burks had been in the White House for weeks and she couldn't believe what Fauci was saying. And she's like, that guy's blanking crazy. You know, we can't talk to him. That's a complete waste of time. You know, she was like, come on, Tony. You know what I mean? Like, whose side are you on here? And, Hmm. you know, whereas Fauci thought, well, if the guy's a doctor, you know, he's got to kind of be on our side at the end of the day. Um, Burks just was like, listen, we have to, like, stick together. And we cannot let this guy who 
does not believe strongly in wearing masks and believes we should be re reopening really quickly, we cannot let the guy dictate U.S. health policy or things are going to get really bad. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I think all of us can be very critical of public health officials and how they responded to this crisis and how people in the government navigated it. But I'm wondering if you heard stories of success, of things that people at the top levels of the government did that potentially saved lives. Yeah, there was one fascinating moment in the early days. So in February, when the Diamond Princess cruise ship was floating off the coast of Japan, and there were several hundred Americans on the cruise ship, and it became terrifyingly clear that a lot of them were sick and had coronavirus. And so there was this like really intense debate within the U.S. government about what to do with these elderly Americans who were sick. And so they ended up deciding, actually kind of on the tarmac of the airport in Japan, to send these Americans back and on a plane. Some of the Americans were sick with coronavirus, and some of them were not. There was this moment when the president was apoplectic that uh, sick Americans were coming back to the United States because he was obsessed with that number that was on the bottom right of every cable television show showing the number of you know sick Americans. And so he wanted to prevent any more sick Americans from stepping foot on U.S. soil. And so he, in a meeting in the Situation Room, told aides, you know, I don't want to import this virus. Don't we have an island that we own that we can send these people? How about Guantanamo? Jesus. And people kind of froze, you know, like, is he kidding? And another meeting in the Oval Office shortly after that, he said, you know, what's the status of the Guantanamo thing? And then that's when AIDS realized he was going to keep bringing it up. and He was serious and they decided they had to scuttle it because sending 80-year-olds to Guantanamo Bay with a virus that no one knew, you know, or understood was both a public relations nightmare and also a public health potential disaster. It seems to me like the story of the pandemic in so many ways is the story of missed opportunities. And I wonder, and, and you know, so many of us know what these missed opportunities were at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Like, why weren't more people wearing masks more quickly? And why didn't the government come out and encourage people to do that? But I'm wondering if there are other missed opportunities that you discovered in your reporting that are things that we haven't really heard about. I think one of the big ones was this plan from HHS in March to send masks to every American household. One of the top officials there had already worked with Hanes and Jockey and a number of the underwear manufacturers to convert some of their facilities and make masks. They were producing about 600 or 650 million masks that they were going to send to every household. So enough for each person to have about two. And they were just going to put them in the mail and just mail them to everybody? Exactly. They were going to use the postal system, which was one of the problems, because at the time, the president was waging this war against the postal system, and his aides determined that he was never going to go for something that relied on <laughs> on the postal system. God forbid putting things in the mail. <laughs> right. And 
I think it's important to remember that when we're talking about mid to late March, there was no recommendation that people wear masks yet. And it was still up for debate. The doctors were not all on the same page about it yet, but they were starting to get there. But there wasn't a a message publicly that we should be wearing masks. The idea was, let's just send them. They come from the U.S. government will depoliticize this whole discussion and everyone will just Mm. wear them. It won't be a big deal. And everyone will Mm. have them. And instead, when Alex Azar, then the Health and Human Services Secretary, modeled these masks from Hanes and Jockey and the underwear manufacturers at the meeting, he was ridiculed. Someone said that it looked like he had underwear on his face. Someone else said it looked like a training bra. (laughs) And the plan was scuttled. So after hearing all these stories, talking to all these people with a little bit more time and distance, what do you both feel are your takeaways of how we should understand what exactly happened over the last year and a half? Well, I think in retrospect, this virus was almost like an alien invasion of the United States. Mm. You know, there was no living memory of an asymptomatic deadly killer like this that was able to move. So I think, you know, it's not a surprise that the virus was able to get here and kind of sink its teeth into the country. Um, But what happened next, I think, is something that we will be studying and second-guessing for decades to come. And I think, obviously, a, a huge story of the Trump administration response was the politicization of it all we found that no one could really identify who the leader was at any given point in time, which was obviously hugely detrimental to the whole effort. But also this this politicization obviously became pretty egregious by the end of the year, but it didn't start that way. And when we asked people why they stayed and why they made the decisions they did, for example, the CDC guidances and why sometimes the agency succumbed to pressure it, the the thought was what they're asking us for is so ridiculous that we need to give them something. Let's not give them the crazy thing they're asking for, but we can make a small concession here. And that paved the way for more and more and more dangerous interference because what it showed the White House and the president was that if they applied enough pressure, they could get people to cave. Yasmin and I spoke to more than 180 people for this book, many of them in the White House or in the agencies that were central to the response. And not a single person defended the government's response to this pandemic. Not a single person. There were people who defended their own actions and, you know, cast blame on someone else. But everyone said this was a mess. You know, no one is proud of this moment. Um, everyone is going to be haunted in some way by their actions or the process that they were a part of. And we felt like it was really important to chronicle that and to put that all in one place because, you know, there's going to be another pandemic one day. It might not be next year, but it'll happen. And if we don't take lessons away from this, then we could have another, you know, really bad situation on our hands soon. Damien Paletta is an economics editor, and Yasmin Abutalib is a health policy reporter for The Post. Their book is called Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic That Changed History. It's out on Tuesday. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. 
that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rena Flores. We would love to hear your thoughts about this and other stories you hear on the podcast. You can always reach out on Twitter by using the hashtag PostReports or send us an email at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.